Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. It is good to be with you. My name is Matt Kerber. I'm a pastor at City Reformed. Uh, We are settling back into the 20th Century Club after a couple of eventful weeks. The month of May and early June often tends to be uh, a bit eventful for us. We're transitioning as we move out of the school year. We return to one service. And uh, it seemed that every week over the last uh, five weeks or so, there was either a major event in Oakland or we were being displaced to another venue. Um, And uh, we're settling in. We expect to be here for the next 11 months or so, Lord willing. Um, We also uh, are dismissing our children for Children's Church. If you've not done so, this is an opportunity to do it. So uh, the other thing that's about to happen is I'm about to have an extended vacation. Um, It's been sort of a long run for me. I'm looking forward to it. Our family will be driving cross-country together in our van, our minivan, and uh, we'll spend three weeks together. Uh, visiting national parks, sleeping in a tent, and trying not to kill each other. So you could be praying for us that this would actually be a break and not uh, an extended conflict. Uh, We're actually looking forward to it and quite hopeful. Um, During the next four weeks, uh, I'll be here next Sunday. I won't be preaching. We'll have a number of preachers from the congregation stepping up and filling the pulpit. So we'll take a little bit of a break from what we're doing in the book of Acts, and then we'll return to it uh, later in July. So, um, quick reminder of what we're doing here. We're in the book of Acts. We're in the, looking at the final chapters during this period. Paul is imprisoned. He has been proclaiming faithfully the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's been a witness for Jesus in Jerusalem, and it was very costly for him. The opposition uh, pushed against him. He was nearly torn apart by a mob twice. Now he's in prison. And uh, there is a promise made to him at the beginning of this section that not only will he have been able to proclaim Christ faithfully in Jerusalem, but he will make it to Rome and there he will be a faithful witness. But at this point, it seems anything but certain from a human perspective that Paul will get to Rome. What I'm going to do today is I'm going to read some excerpts from two chapters, the center part, the sort of interlude in this, this unit we're working through. It begins with Paul in Jerusalem, and it ends with the imminent plans for him to move to Rome. What makes it so interesting is that we get sort of a window into God's work in the world. We hear a promise from Jesus that he is going to bring Paul to Rome from Jerusalem. And along the way, we'll see all of the varied and different manners in which Paul is brought to that place. Um, So we'll look at this section. I'll be reading uh, some of the extended dialogue. I won't be reading in in this passage. You can go home and read it. Uh, I encourage you to do that. But we'll see this sort of unfolding story as Jesus makes a promise. And then we see the sort of imminent uh, movement for Paul to get to Rome. We'll begin in Romans chapter 3 verses uh, 11 through 17. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and the elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now therefore you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly, and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, 
So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. Continuing verse 22. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, Tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. Chapter 24, verse 1. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and spokesmen, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. Continuing in verse 22. But Felix, who was the governor, having heard their arguments, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control on the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given to him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul. And they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem. Because they they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Continue in verse 9. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to these charges against me, no one can give, them, give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, who he had conferred, after, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. This is the word of the Lord. Well, when we begin the story, uh, things have gone quite sideways or even upside down for Paul and his ministry after many years of successful ministry, uh, moving on great missionary expeditions around the known world, mostly around the eastern part of the Mediterranean Sea, even getting as far as Greece, having a, a very successful ministry of planting churches and establishing churches beyond the bounds of the Jewish community, but actually bringing the faith into the Gentile or non-Jewish community. After several, many years of successful ministry, he returned to Jerusalem and in an attempt to sort of smooth over some of the difficulties that the Jewish church was facing in Jerusalem, he went to the temple uh, and there uh, everything went sour. A riot broke out against him. He was barely saved by the Roman soldiers who pulled him out of the mob. And then later he asked to speak to them. He initially quieted them. 
And then when he speaks of his ministry to the Gentiles, it erupts again. The soldiers break in, pull him out. And when we begin this section, Paul is in prison as much for his own safety as for anything else. We can only imagine how deeply discouraging this would have been. The rejection by his own people. The fear of his life. Uh, At this moment, it may seem that all of his hopes and dreams to continue to move westward with the gospel into Rome, maybe as far as Spain, as he told us in one of his letters. These dreams seem to be deferred, possibly shelved for good. And then there's the fear of his life. He sees the hostility of the crowds, and even at this moment, the plot is rising against him to conspire to kill him before he can be brought to trial. We can imagine all of the things Paul may have been thinking or feeling in many of his letters. He can be very open about his concerns and the heaviness he feels in the midst of opposition and the burdens of ministry. And so it is in this moment, as we see elsewhere in the book of Acts, the Lord comforted him. The text says simply, the Lord stood by him that very night. The night after all of the trouble broke out in the temple, the Lord stood by him. This is at least the third time in the books of, book of Acts that we're told that the Lord comforted Jesus. In the other two occasions, uh, it, it was uh, specifically said to be a vision of Jesus. At one place, Paul said he fell into a trance. In the other place, he said he had a vision. So we suspect a similar thing is happening here. But w- however it's being uh, communicated, the Lord is showing his closeness to Paul. When we're in trouble and difficulty, God can communicate care for us and comfort for his people in many ways. Sometimes he reassures them of his love or of his closeness. Sometimes he reassures them of a a final ultimate goal that he will win in the end and all things will be made new. But here, the means of comfort is a specific promise. This promise given directly to Paul that God would be at work in his life. As you have testified here in Jerusalem, so you shall testify for me in Rome. And so the comfort that comes in this particular case is a promise of something that will happen in the future. This is extraordinary. This is not everyday stuff. This is the Lord speaking to an apostle about a specific thing he will do in his life to make his ministry effective. And for us, it's an incredible window into seeing God at work in the world as he works through the circumstances of Paul's life. It's in a sense here that Paul pulls, uh, has the, the curtains drawn back just a little bit for him. He's able to, to peek in behind the curtain to see the, the way the machinery of God is working just a little bit better. A promise of what will happen through a vision to this prophet, this apostle, Paul. And through it, we have a vision as well. We, we get to see God at work in the world and things that we might not otherwise see as his working. As we look over these two chapters, I, I wanted to draw out for you some of the things we see about God's work in the world and Paul's life. While we're not apostles, while we don't have this, I don't believe normally we wouldn't have this sort of direct communication. This is apostolic. It's part of uh, God working through a prophet we don't know for sure what we will do we don't have the same promise that you know Matt you will go to Rome and there proclaim the gospel I haven't received that vision and yet there are ways in which God is working in our lives he's promising to do things for you he has promised to do things for you 
God has promised certain things in your life, and I just want you to think about them for a second as we move through the passage. He's promised that he has prepared good works for you to do and that you can walk in them. It's a powerful promise. He's promised that for all who trust in Jesus, that they will receive forgiveness, adoption into his family, and that they will one day be brought home to the heavenly kingdom. Along the way, God has promised to be at work in your life, changing you shaping you, transforming you. The biblical word is sanctifying you. That is what God has promised to be doing. But how does it happen? I think as we look through this window into Paul's life, this window of God at work in Paul's life, we can learn things and apply them to our own situation. Again, the circumstances are very different. There are three things we see as we look at this extended story. It begins with Paul in prison, and it ends with the words of the governor of the region saying, you're going to Rome. It's, a, it's a, a long journey and it takes a number of years and it has its twists and turns, its ups and its downs. But there are three things we learn as we look at the passage. First of all, we see and we're reminded that God is working in Paul's life and sometimes completely beyond his control. There are things happening here where God shows himself powerful when Paul has no control at all. And then we'll see things here where it seems as if Paul's life has hit a standstill. He experiences suffering and disappointment, and we really receive no explanation at all about some of the, the, the side roads and the detours and the delays in his journey, which I think we can learn from as well. And third and finally, we'll see that Paul is called to take decisive action in the midst of the story. That even though God is at work, and sometimes at work completely beyond him, he is also at work in and through him. And as we move through that today, I want to encourage you to think about your own lives, your own story, the story of how God might be working to make good works happen through you, to bring you to a place where you're using your gifts for the benefit of others and for the glory of God, or how God is working to change you, to make you more like Jesus. And I would suggest that in all three of these ways, we see God doing those things for us as well. So let me begin by looking at the ways in which God is at work completely beyond Paul's control. And I would suggest that's really what the beginning of this section shows us. After all, we begin with Paul in prison. He's behind bars. He really can't do anything. That's sort of the definition of prison. He can't act out in the world. And the plots are being hatched against him. Verse 12, it speaks of a plot being made against him. Those who are plotting are Jewish. We're reminded that uh, that many in the Jewish faith, in the Jewish uh, nation, believed and were Christians. Paul himself was Jewish. But there were leaders and there were religious fanatics who were opposed to him. And here they are plotting against them. And in some ways it's a reminder, sort of a foreshadowing as we think of this spot in history, probably around 59 AD. We're only seven years away from the plot, a major insurrection exploding in Jerusalem as the people of Israel rebel against the Roman Empire, a rebellion that would bring disastrous defeat and the destruction of the temple. So here we we were reminded just a bit of a taste of what was happening at at the time. Uh, What was in the air of Jerusalem? Uh, uh, People zealous for the law and their tradition and their independence, ready to fight even the Roman Empire to get after Paul. 
and yet they don't get to him. And a series of really pretty extraordinary circumstances unfold completely beyond Paul's control and he's spirited away from danger. First of all, uh, the plot is made known to Paul's nephew and we may wonder, we do wonder, why, why was Paul's nephew in the city? He may have been there for the feast of Pentecost, but Paul was from Tarsus. It's not automatic he would have family in Jerusalem. And, and how was it that he learned of this plot? They must have not either known that he was a nephew of Paul or else they assumed that he was so opposed to Paul that he wouldn't say anything. And we we could imagine and even admire the bravery he had to go to the authorities, risking his own life to share of this plot. The text seems to indicate that he was a, a younger boy. We don't know the age, but it would have been a daring thing for him to do. And certainly far from automatic that the the authorities would have believed him or that they would have taken such quick, overwhelming, decisive action. The text tells us that there's a large military force that escorts Paul to their first stop outside of the city. It's an overwhelming display of power that even if they had known against it, those who were plotting against his life wouldn't have had a hope of getting to Paul. All of that, all of that happening completely beyond Paul's control. And that's, I think, in many ways, part of the story. If we hadn't heard this this story of the vision of the Lord Jesus showing himself to Paul, saying, you will meet me in Rome, we may be tempted to say, just from a human perspective, what what an extraordinary set of coincidences. How incredibly lucky he was. How did that happen that way? And yet with the curtain pulled back as we look behind into the machinery of God, so to speak, we can say that in the midst of all of these decisions and all of these actions completely beyond Paul's control, God was at work for a purpose far greater probably than anyone knew who was an actor in the scene. I think that's an important thing for us to consider. To consider the way in which God was working beyond Paul's control to bring about his purposes. I just want to pause for a moment and ask you to think about your life and consider what is God doing in your life and your story as God brings you to a place where your gifts are used in ministry for the good works he's prepared for you. As God changes you and shapes you and makes you more like Jesus as he brings you ever closer to your eternal home. How's God at work in your life and the experiences and circumstances completely beyond your control? I think many of you could share and think quickly of those circumstances that you had just about nothing to do with that made made such a decisive role in your life. Sometimes tragic circumstances beyond our control and sometimes tragedy narrowly averted. I have vivid memories of driving in a rainstorm on Interstate 80 years ago, in, in, in the midst of the rain, I was pulling over. I didn't see the truck behind me. And as I pulled over to merge, I suddenly realized I was feet from a large tractor-trailer truck. And I never saw it. Sometimes we get a glimpse, don't we, of that moment where we just miss. And we see God at work. And we had nothing to do with it. Maybe you can look at your own life and you think of the people you've met or the job that you have or the place that you live. Maybe you're in Pittsburgh by circumstances beyond your control. And you said, I never really wanted to be in Pittsburgh. But here you are. 
God's doing something and he's working and you didn't plan it. But we're confident that behind the scenes he has purposes greater than what we could imagine. Sometimes we get a glimpse of these things. The great classic Christian book, Pilgrim's Progress, has a scene in which this Christian pilgrim journeys through this terrible marshy swampland at night with a precipice at one side and bogs and monsters at the other side and as he goes through in the night he's just led along step by step and as the morning dawns he rises over the hill and he looks back and he sees oh my it was all a lot closer than I ever imagined it was more dangerous I had no idea what the Lord was leading me through and now I get a glimpse Has God given you a glimpse of his work in your life beyond your control, doing things that you just can't make happen on your own? Well, often we can see it, but the passage doesn't continue that way. It's not the only thing that God does. There are times where we have to let go and let God, I suppose, that we we, we can't do anything and we wait for God to act. And we see him working powerfully. But the next section shows us a time and a place where God doesn't seem to be working at all. Paul seems to have hit a standstill. He's caught in the doldrums, so to speak. And if you read the section in its entirety, it's pretty long. It, it, Luke kind of highlights this aspect. There's a sort of a, a long series of dialogues and trials, and there's a couple of them, and one seems to be a lot like the other, and you almost get the sense that there's a, a repetition driving home the point that at this point in the story, Paul, having been rescued from Jerusalem, sort of hits a standstill. He gets caught on the the spin cycle for a little while. Let me show you what I mean. We see in chapter 24, verse 1, Paul's been taken out of Jerusalem. He goes to Caesarea. Caesarea would be the, the center of Roman power. Jerusalem was the center of Jewish religious identity. So the Roman governors much preferred hanging out in in Caesarea. It was the main port. And if you were going to get to Rome on a boat, it was the closest you could be to Rome. This was the center of Roman power. So Paul is really out of the lion's den. He's into Caesarea. And the religious leaders come down to lay out their case against Paul. They're not going to give up so quickly. But the governor, Felix, knows something about the way. We're told later that his wife, Drusilla, is Jewish. So he knows something about the region in which he's governing. He has sort of an inside track in knowing the religion of the Jewish people. And he knows also of this new uh, movement among the Jewish people, is how he would have thought of it, called The Way, the early Christian church. Now, now Felix is certainly not the most savory character. He was known for repressing Jewish rebellion with brutal authority It would end the the reign of of his uh, time as uh, governor just two years forward into the future. He was also disregarded generally by the Jewish people as being fairly promiscuous. He had three wives. His third wife was Drusilla. And the legend or the rumors that were told about them is that he had taken her from her prior husband with the help of a sorcerer. So this is the judge that Paul is before And yet he knows enough of the case, and he has a long history of acting in the land. And so when he hears the charges against Paul, he knows they have no substance. Verse 22, it says, he has knowledge of the matter at hand, and he put them off. 
he knows that Paul is not guilty. He's not going to turn him back over to the religious leaders. He's certainly not going to punish him himself. And at this point, things get very interesting, and you begin to think, oh, maybe this is what God is doing, because it says that this leader, this notorious leader, has an interest in hearing from Paul about Christ Jesus. And so Paul has found himself out of the lion's den. He's landed before a fairly favorable judge, the governor of the Roman Empire, this part of the Roman Empire, this this region. And this man has the power to set him free. And in these circumstances, Paul now has opportunity to testify before the governor about his faith in Jesus Christ. you, You can probably imagine his excitement. And he speaks to him clearly and accurately, verse 25, about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. It may be that Luke highlights intentionally those parts of Paul's talk that Felix is least likely to want to hear. Paul doesn't sugarcoat the message. He tells it like it is. In the message of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ as it calls us to follow and pick up our Christ and pursue righteousness is alarming to Felix. And he sends Paul away. And then Paul waits. The text says clearly that Felix knows that he's not guilty. And yet he waits. This unsavory leader with the power over Paul's future has other ambitions He's willing to bring Paul back once in a while. He'll listen to him some more. He's willing to have him tickle his ears, as we might say, quoting another part of the New Testament. But he's not seriously engaging. In fact, he's more interested in a bribe. He thinks if he keeps Paul around, he might get Paul to pay something highly illegal but common practice in the Roman Empire of the time. And furthermore, even when when this time as governor comes from an end. His fairly brutal reign over the subjects of the region, of the Jewish people, comes to an end. He could have given Paul an 11th hour pardon on his way out the door. But wishing to do a favor to the Jewish people, he leaves Paul in prison for two years. For two years, Paul waits. And he sits And occasionally he's called in to see the governor and maybe each time he's thinking, this is it. This is the moment God's going to work. Now I'll know why I'm here. Now I'll know why I've spent these two years waiting in Caesarea. And nothing happens. And Luke doesn't tell us anything that happens in those two years. Now we know Paul was busy. He was writing letters And he probably had a faithful witness to the guards and the people around him. And he was probably recovering his energy after a grueling couple of years. We're told he's cared for well. We can imagine and infer that all of that is happening here. But Luke doesn't tell us any of it. What we have is a picture of the Lord Jesus promising you'll be in Rome. And we see quick action. And then we see two years of waiting where nothing happens. Nothing is reported good coming out of that time by Luke. As the more I think about it, the more thankful I am that Luke thought to include this note. He's writing a history. He's telling us what happened. He was there for these events. He saw it and he recorded it and we receive it. And I'm not sure that Luke really understood it. Maybe that's the point. 
even the Apostle Paul, destined for Rome. With this prophetic word that he will reach Rome and he will be a faithful witness and he will do all that he was called to do still waits two years seemingly for no purpose. So I think of my own life, I've had periods in my life where things have moved quickly, rapidly. I had this powerful sense that God was at work taking me, moving me, shaping me, bringing me places that I couldn't have gone on my own. And other times where it seems like nothing is happening. I committed myself to follow Jesus as Lord towards the end of my time in college, and the first couple of years were incredibly active. God turned my life upside down. It was as if I was moving rapidly down a stream, being tossed and turned on every side, forces beyond my control, as God was shaping me and moving me. And then, there's a period of time I remember well, about shortly after I was married, I spent a year working at a home for court-placed kids. And pretty much nothing happened. I kept thinking, surely God's going to show up and do an amazing thing at work in this place. And I never got to see it. That was surprising to me. I'd sort of expected that if you were a Christian, I was a young Christian, I didn't know any better. I expected if you were a Christian, every month or every week would be full of like breathtaking excitement. And I had read the book of Acts at this point, and I thought, that's got to be the Christian life. And I probably glossed over this part of it, right? I don't know if I fully grasped what was happening here. The book of Acts, the Christian life, isn't actually nonstop action. Sometimes there are periods of waiting. And sometimes God will show us, hey, that's what I was doing in that period of time. That period of waiting, that period of suffering. And yes, Paul's not being tortured in prison here. But just think about it for a second. This restless missionary for two years stuck under house arrest in Caesarea. If you had two years in house arrest, you would think of it as the worst two years of your life. nothing's happening maybe that's the lesson Deuteronomy 29 29 says the secret things belong to God but the things he's revealed are for us and for our children God has revealed to Paul you will get to Jerusalem you will get to Rome and even along the way there were things secret even to Paul secret to Luke secret to us in this story we don't know why Paul was stuck waiting Maybe you don't know why you're stuck waiting. Maybe you've seen God work quickly and rapidly, and maybe you've also experienced times, maybe you're in one now where not a lot seems to be happening. You're called to be faithful, and God is building your character, and God is working through you, but maybe you won't get to see the big, exciting, show-stopping explanation for why you've spent three years in Pittsburgh or five or ten or your life right sometimes we get to see behind the curtains and know what God's at work doing and sometimes we just see the curtains and yet we trust that God is at work we trust that he's working when we don't know why or how or what third and finally we see here that Paul is also called to take action. 
in the final section we look at, it all hinges on a decisive choice that Paul makes. Again, the backdrop of it all is the promise of Jesus, you will get to Rome. And for part of it, Paul's being carried along like a twig on a stream, moving down, moved and tossed and turned beyond his control. And then for part of it, it's as if the twig got caught into a little eddy at the side of a stream. It just spins in the midst of the pollen and the leaves and not much is happening. And then in this final scene, we see that Paul also is active. That Paul is being called to make a choice. And it's actually a, a, a pretty frightening choice that he has to make. In the final scene, we see that Paul appeals to Caesar. It, it could lead to big trouble. Once he takes this fateful choice, his course will be laid out for him. He knows the only way to Rome will be in chains. And he will stand before Caesar, who can be quite unpredictable. Paul foreshadows a little bit of the danger that might lie ahead. He says, you know, if I've really done something I'm guilty of, I won't try to escape death. The stakes of standing before Caesar could be quite high. And yet Paul makes the choice and he trusts God and the story moves forward with Paul as a participant in God's great sovereign plans. Let me just unfold the details a little bit. We're told that the time of Felix ended. This is so typical of the time in the area. One governor ends, another steps in. Festus arrives. He'll be there for two years. And by all accounts, he's a pretty good governor, better than the ones before and after him, but he will die suddenly. What we see of Festus here is a man who seems to be interested in justice, interested in action. He comes in, he's going to learn about what's happening in the region and immediately he finds out about a prisoner that he has that's a holdover from Felix. So like any governor of the region, he has to go up to Jerusalem. This is the center, the religious center of the region that he's governing. So he goes to Jerusalem and the religious leaders have not forgotten about Paul. They have a new governor and a new attempt to get Paul back and they're going back with the old plan Plan A, all over again, Luke tells us they're going to try and get Paul transferred, bring the case back here, we might say redistricted or something like that today, and you know, not only would it be better to have the pressure of Jerusalem, but they've got a plan to get them en route. Well, Festus seems to be a decent governor, but he may be a bit naive. He denies this charge at first, but later when he's back in Caesarea, he starts to talk to Paul and he says, Paul, what do you think about going to Jerusalem? It's your homeland after all, your city. Paul is not naive. He knows what's at stake and he realizes that Jerusalem would be a terrible trap. And so he makes his choice. The section we read ends with Paul's choice. I appeal to Caesar. This was the right of a Roman citizen. It changed some over time, but it seems that even from the beginning of the Roman Empire, there was the expectation that a citizen had certain rights, that he could be tried only by Caesar in certain cases. And so Paul appeals to a higher court. He's going to stay in the Roman court, but he's asking to be moved up outside of this region. With all the stakes and the danger that goes with it, Paul makes his choice and the rest of the book will hinge on that choice. Here's what's so powerful for us to think about here. God in his sovereignty 
in his power as king, the God who said from the beginning you will get to Rome, asks Paul to make choices along the way. And I think, friends, there's a lesson that we can draw there that's so important. We think about God's work in our lives. There are times where it's beyond our control. And there are times where there's nothing we can do and we're waiting and we're not sure what God's doing. But there are also times where God calls us to responsible action, to making a a hard choice. Sometimes I think there's a a sort of a, a false piety that we can pull down over our life and we can say, well, you know, if God really wanted it to happen, he would make it happen. If he wanted me to get a new job, he'd make it happen. And certainly as we look at this section today, we see God's absolute power and there are times where God takes us out of one job and he puts us in another. And yet there are also times where God calls us to be responsible and wise to make hard decisions and difficult choices trusting his power. Are you ever tempted to pull sort of the veil of piety over your hard decisions? To say, well, you know, this probably isn't the right relationship for me to be in, but if God wanted it to end, he could end it. And that is true. And yet God calls you to be responsible and faithful in the places you're in. There's an old saying, I think it was Shakespeare in one of his plays that says, heavy lies the head that wears the crown. Many of you have moved into positions or jobs where you've been given real responsibility and real authority and you found the burden is sometimes heavier than what you imagined. I remember as a young person, I was working in a summer camp and I had a job as a counselor and I spent the entire summer with my friends second-guessing everything our leaders did. That winter, I was called to work as a, as a, a leader of a small weekend of camp. I was in charge. I went in with one of my friends and we had big plans for what we were going to do and it took just a couple of hours before we realized it's so much harder than we ever imagined. These are hard choices and hard decisions. And in the face of some of those hard things, it's tempting for us to pull back and just let go and say, all right, we'll just let God act. Where he may be calling you to be responsible, to make a hard decision with difficult consequences. Friends, in all of these things, whether you are beyond control, whether you're seeing the mystery of God's ways, or whether you're facing hard decisions in all of them, we are undergirded by the reminder that God is at work. He is able to be sovereign when we have no control. And he is acting sovereignly when we're not sure what he's doing. And he is also still in control when he calls you to make a hard decision. When he calls you to a path to exercise wisdom in all that the Bible tells us about making wise choices, God is still there. In control. Isn't this the great comfort we have as we go down the streams and the unpredictable pathways of life? It was the Lord who stood by him, Luke tells us, whether in a vision, in some sort of a trance, in some sort of an angel of the Lord perhaps appearing, we don't know, but the closeness and the presence and the person of Jesus is emphasized. Friends, we close our service this Sunday with the Lord's Supper. 
a reminder of his closeness to us and care for us. A reminder that all the twists and turns of life, the things beyond our control, the seeming delays or maybe dead ends or the hard, heavy, difficult choices that lie ahead of us and all these things, the one who stands by us is the Lord Jesus who suffered for us so that we can suffer with him who willingly and freely carried his cross to Golgotha where he made the choice to lay his life down for you that you would be forgiven and adopted and brought to your heavenly home. In his great hymn, Amazing Grace, John Newton, looking back at the twists and the turns and the sovereign working of God in his life, says these great lines, It was grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace that will lead me home. As we read in our assurance of pardon, the Apostle Paul says, if God gave his son for you, can you not be convinced he will give you all things? In all twists and turns and dead ends and uncertainties and frightening decisions, if God has given Jesus to us, can we not be convinced of his purposes even when it's not seen clearly? Friends, I invite you to come to this table today, coming to the Lord, knowing that he stands by you and cares for you in the midst of all uncertainties. Let's pray.